0: Would you please pray with me? Almighty God, open us now to receive your word, then write it upon our hearts so that in all that we do and say, we may be letters of your love. Amen. When I was nine years old, my parents took my older sister and me to Korea for the first time. Given that this was the first visit to Korea since my parents had emigrated to the United States, there were a lot of friends and extended family members for my parents to see. I couldn't tell you how many people I was introduced to, and with nearly every introduction, as I remember it, the immediate response of the adults was always the same What? No sons? Just two daughters? For the first time in my life, that summer I encountered this reaction nearly every day, sometimes multiple times a day. And that's when a thought began to form in my nine-year-old mind. I thanked God that both of us, my sister and I, were girls and that my parents didn't have a son because I didn't think I would have liked living with that contrast. Trabian Shorters, creator and CEO of Be Me Community, is convinced that who we think we are is shaped by the stories we hear and tell about ourselves. Like many black people, he too picked up the habit of defining himself and other black males in terms of their deficits rather than their assets, in terms of their costs rather than their contributions. He tells a story about a woman, Octavia Wilson, who broke him of this habit. He writes, I was at a national conference on community service And about a dozen black people who had met at the conference gathered to get to know one another. The first brother, who was my age, introduced himself by saying, My name is so-and-so, and and I'm from thus-and-such. My dad wasn't in the home. My neighborhood was dangerous. And we had no positive black male role models. So that's why I now do what I do. Then I said, my name is Trabian, and I'm from Pontiac, Michigan. My dad wasn't in the home. My neighborhood was dangerous, and we had no positive black male role models. So that's why I now do what I do. The next guy started repeating the same refrain when Octavia who was twice our age, interrupted with a pained expression on her face. Why do you keep saying that? She asked. You mean to tell me that you never had an uncle or a grandfather or your mom never dated a man who knew right from wrong? You really had no positive black male role models when you were growing up? It was as if she turned on a light in the room. I had all three of those types of men in my life, and by my lip-syncing the lie that there are no positive black male role models, I had discounted the very men who made all the difference in my life. My grandfather was a minister. My uncle Charles was a former Marine and current family man. And my mother dated a good man for many years who had a past as a gangster. The minister, the soldier, and the gangster role-modeled commitment to love, freedom, and family in ways that remain with me to this day. So I never again told the lie about there being no positive black male role models in my life. And I began searching for a way for America to climb out of those hostile, denigrating narratives. Of course, the stories we tell and are told impact what we think about ourselves and others. They impact even the first impression, that first introduction we make or receive. Imagine being all together in the sanctuary right now. Imagine physically turning to face the person who happens to be seated next to you. Perhaps someone you don't know at all, or someone you know a little or very well. Now imagine focusing on really paying attention to all the negative things that you see about that person. Imagine looking at your neighbor, thinking as much as you can about all that is wrong with that person. Wouldn't that be an awful thought exercise to undertake? It would feel and be awful to do this. And yet, unfortunately, we do it unintentionally all too often. We have a habit of seeing deficits in people, including ourselves, of defining people in terms of their costs instead of their contributions. There's a lot of talk these days about negativity bias. Negativity bias is defined as a tendency to notice and dwell on things that are negative. Cognitive science is teaching us that our brains are actually hardwired to focus on negative events more than positive ones, to recall insults more than praise, to react more strongly to and think more frequently about negative things than positive things. According to researchers, this tendency is likely a result of human evolution, So it's not going to change right away. Negativity bias is something that therapists observe in their clients. It's something which the field of journalism is becoming becoming more aware of, but has certainly counted on to reinforce their old saying, if it bleeds, it leads. That our brains have this bias is something of which we need to be aware Because it makes a real difference in how we deal with traumatic experiences, how we relate to our spouses, our family, our coworkers, how we consume the news, how we perceive the world as a friendly or hostile environment, how we see and what we think of people, others, and ourselves imagine now that Jesus is seated beside you. He turns and looks at you. What do you imagine Jesus sees? What are the stories that you have been told either about Jesus or about yourself that impact how you think Jesus sees you? The story we heard this morning is preceded by stories of Jesus traveling around the countryside of Galilee. Everywhere he goes, he encounters and is introduced to people who are perhaps at the lowest point of their lives. Some are behaving in ways that are so out of control and challenging that Jesus has to cast out demons from them. Some are sick so sick that other people have have to bring them to see Jesus. Luke tells us in chapter 4 that many people with various kinds of diseases were brought to Jesus, and Jesus heals them. So clearly, Jesus knows how weak and frail we are or can be. He has seen us when we are at our worst, our lowest, when we feel he renames Peter, In Greek, Petros, the rock on whom Jesus builds his church. Let's look at their first encounter, their first introduction to one another. Jesus was on the shore of the lake of Gennesaret, teaching people the word of God. Once again, a crowd was pressing on him, perhaps to give himself some breathing space. When he saw a boat there at the shore of the lake, he hopped into it. All the fishermen had finished for the day, returned from an unsuccessful fishing expedition. Having caught no fish, he still had to clean his nets, of course. And just as he was finishing that up, this stranger Jesus imposes on him by asking him to take him out on his boat, at first just a little distance from the shore. And after Jesus finishes teaching the crowd from that bit of distance— Simon is probably expecting Jesus to go on home, but nothing. But if you say so, I'll let down the nets that I just finished cleaning. It is Simon's way of both letting Jesus know what it costs Simon, and of lowering Jesus' expectation. What happens next, of course, blows Simon's mind. He caught so many fish that his net was about to burst that he had to signal to other fishermen, James and John, for the use of their boats to bring in their catch, a catch so heavy that both boats started to sink. It was Simon's mind, Simon's expectations, not Jesus's, that had to be changed. You see, Simon had been thinking negatively and understandably so. Having just returned empty-handed from a long night of fishing, he was down on himself, his situation, and perhaps his prospects for the future. Those were likely the thoughts running on repeat through Simon's mind when Jesus first encountered him. Is that what Jesus saw when he met Simon? Of course Jesus saw those things, It would be hard not to see them. But is that all Jesus saw? A man who, no matter how hard he worked, brought in nothing. A man with no prospects. We know that's not all Jesus saw or thought when he saw Simon. Jesus didn't see Simon first and foremost as someone who is deficient, unworthy, or useless. Jesus saw in Simon a fisherman, someone who, as long as there are fish in the sea, keeps taking the boat out. And Jesus gives to Simon an even greater mission, saying, from truly is the depth of his weakness and deficits. It is the scariest thing, really, to allow ourselves to be known that well up close and deep down, by others. It is a risk that we sometimes allow ourselves to take with our spouses, our life partners, our closest friends. It's a sacred trust into which we are born as children, a trust that our parents will love us unconditionally. This sacred trust that feels scary and risky is faith. Faith. It's a habit, one that we must keep practicing all our lives as we relate to others and orient ourselves to God's world. It's the only thing that can break us out of that other habit, that negativity bias, faith, trust, that Jesus knows us, loves us, and that God who created us calls us good, overrides our thoughts of unworthiness, enabling us to follow Jesus. Later today, we will hold a congregational meeting at which time the nominating committee will present to us eight people who have said that they are willing to serve as elders, and seven people who have said that they're willing to serve as deacons. Beyond them are tens and tens of others who have said yes. They will serve on committees that carry out the ministries of this church. When Jesus calls any of us, it's not the cost that he sees, but our contributions. It's not our abilities or disabilities as much as our availability and desire to serve. I give thanks to God for the trust, the faith that has enabled every person who has ever said, here I am, Lord. Use me. Amen.